Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's uh, good to see everyone this New Year's morning. I'm sure some of you, maybe many of you, were tempted to sleep in this morning after a late night. So uh, it is good to see all of you guys this morning. Uh, actually, Steve Smallman was originally scheduled to preach this morning, but uh, I'm filling in because he and Sandy had a wild night out last night. And so uh, I'm totally kidding. If you're getting this on the audio, I'm totally kidding. Um, right? But it is New Year's morning, and I don't know how you guys feel or approach the transition from one year to another. Uh, some of you may be very sort of conscientious about coming up with New Year's resolutions and plans to fulfill these New Year's resolutions. Some of you may make New Year's resolutions but do so kind of half-heartedly, right, almost kind of sheepishly, knowing that you're going to break the resolution by, you know, 2 o'clock this afternoon, right? Uh, as someone who's been physically active for most of his life, it's always uh, humorous to me uh, to watch the swell of attendance at the gym the first couple of weeks in January, uh, only to watch it slowly dwindle by the middle, the end of January. Uh, sometimes my friends and I will actually, uh, when we're in more of a cynical mood, we'll lay down bets. We'll just kind of sit around the gym and point out people, how long you think you'll be here? We'll lay down like two bucks. All right, we'll see. Right? And, uh, and some of you may just kind of ignore the whole thing, right? And uh, your only response to the new year may be, wow, can you believe it's already fill in the blank? Right? And that's basically your response. Now, there's nothing particularly magical or special about the new year, but uh, I do think that it provides us a good time um, to reflect a little bit, to think a little bit about where we've been. Uh, scripture has a lot of rhythms that it, are in our life. And even though the new year is not some kind of biblical mandate or anything, uh, the idea of having rhythms and seasons to our life and uh, having a rhythm where we evaluate and look back is a good one, I think. And one of the passages that has come to mind as I've looked back on this past year and as I've wrestled through a couple of things in my own life has been this one. And especially verses 13 through 14. Right? Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is, lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's what I'd like to think about uh, today. Uh, the, the sermon today is actually going to be from verses 12 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1, but I wanted the earlier parts read because we're going to refer back to them and we need them for context. And what I basically want to do is look at two things out of this passage. One, what does God call us to in this passage? And two, what has God done? in order that we might answer that call that he gives to us. So number one, so first thing, what does God call us to? If you look at verses 12 and 14, right, you'll see that the verb to press on is used twice in those verses. Pressing on, the idea of continuing on and pressing on and pushing toward is the main exhortation of calling of verses 12 through 16 specifically, and really of this entire section beginning verse 12. That's kind of the big exhortation. And everything else is kind of there to support it. And it's this call to press on that I want to spend the first half of this sermon talking about. And this pressing on, pressing on involves several things. The first thing, and I don't really want to spend much time on it because it's kind of uh, self-explanatory, is that pressing on involves endurance and perseverance. Um, that's why you have to press on. And I just want to mention this because as we think about our walk with Christ, as we think about what it means to 
grow in him, uh, we are tempted uh, by the kind of culture we live in to want everything to happen like this. That's why a lot of the people who show up at the gym the first week of January are gone by the third week of January. Right? You get the promises from the two-in-the-morning infomercials. Hey, don't do anything. Sit on your couch. Lose 20 pounds. Get a six-pack. If, if you leave the machine on for an extra 10 minutes, you'll get an eight-pack. Right? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to spend any time on it. But that is not how things work. Technology may have changed since the biblical times, but human nature hasn't. And the ways in which God works to transform that nature haven't. And it takes time. And so pressing on, number one, involves uh, just endurance and perseverance. It's not going to happen by tomorrow or next week. God's calling on your life is a life calling. And what he intends to do in your life will take your whole life. We need to accept that and embrace it. But the second thing that... uh, pressing on involves is this it involves knowing the goal and being assured of the worthiness of the goal that we're pressing on toward right what are we pressing on toward now this seems obvious but it's actually something that we have to come back to again and again because our hearts are very forgetful because our hearts are sinful and rebellious and because we have forces at work against us we have an enemy at work against us we have a culture at work against us trying to lead us to all kinds of other things either trying to distract us or lead us to false goals. Think about your life for a second. Think about all the whir and the noise and the activity of your life, how busy it is, and then how much of it is purposeless. Or maybe even worse, think about the busyness of your life and how much of it is directed toward wrong purposes. Those twin issues, busyness without any purpose, busyness toward wrong purposes, reminds me, a couple of, uh, reminds me of a couple of my favorite quotes. The first one is from a man named John Wooden. He was the coach of the UCLA Bruins in the 60s and 70s, uh, where he won 10 national titles, and he's generally regarded as the greatest basketball, uh, collegiate basketball coach in history. And, one, and he was known as a teacher, and one of the things that he used to say to his players all the time is this, don't confuse activity with achievement. Just because you're running around doesn't mean that you're helping us in any way in the end goal. Don't confuse activity with achievement. But the other quote, and I've lost the source of this, so I can't remember it, but it comes from a commencement speech given at an elite university, And the speaker is standing there, and as he addresses this group of some of the best and brightest, he says to them, I'm not afraid that you will fail, but rather that you will succeed at the wrong thing. Because succeeding at the wrong thing is failing. I remember years ago watching, I was flipping through the channels, and I came across this program And it was about something called the Discovery Eco Challenge. I think the name of it has changed. But it's this, like, team event where it's multi-day, and it's just a flat-out race. And you go across mountains and deserts, and you canoe across all this stuff. It takes, like, ten days to two weeks. Uh, You just go. as You you can rest if you want to rest. You go if you want to go. There's one kind of medical support station in the middle of the race, and that's it. 
right? So people go days without sleeping and all this stuff. Well, anyway, one of the teams that they were highlighting, I think it's a group of five, one of the things you had to do in this year's race was you had to climb over this mountain peak, come down it, and then come down the other side of it. And that's where the rest station was. So this team climbs up the mountain, gets down it. They start looking for the rest station. They can't find it anywhere. Uh, they're freaking out. They look on the map, and they realize they've, cl- they've climbed the wrong mountain. <laughs> so they have to backtrack. There are a lot of mountains that you can spend your life climbing. There are a lot of them. There are only a few, maybe only one, worth climbing. And we need to climb the right mountains in life. Right, these issues of busyness without activity, I mean, busyness without purpose, busyness for the wrong goals. This is not a problem that Paul is suffering from because he knows what goal he's going after and he knows the worthiness of the goal that he's going after, that he's pressing on towards. Right. If you look at, uh, so what is uh, this worthy goal, this worthiest of all goals that Paul is striving toward? In verse 14, he references it, the prize, but he doesn't really spell it out. But I think we can figure it out from verse 12 and the verses that precede it. In verse 12, he writes that he hasn't yet attained this. Right? But what is the this that he's referring to? Well, it narrowly probably refers to the resurrection from the dead that he mentions in verse 11. Uh, But I think it includes the entirety of the desires that he expresses in verse 10. To To know Christ and the power of his resurrection. To share in his sufferings and to become like Christ. All of which will be perfected and consummated and brought to their ultimate completion right, when, Christ, uh, when he's resurrected upon Christ's return. So Paul's twin goals are to know Christ and to become like him. To know Christ and to become like him. And Paul's goals, if we're going to press on, Paul, Paul's goals need to be our goals. Above all things, our goal Our prize ought to be to know Christ, to know him in all his fullness, in all his power, in all his glory, in all his wisdom and majesty and grace and love, and in knowing him, to become like him. One of the things that we need to understand is the role of knowing Christ in relation to life. Knowing Christ is not A, helpful to life. It is not B, the key to life. Is not see even the most important thing in life. Knowing Christ is life. That's what Jesus says in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Most of us, maybe all of us in this room, would have a negative, and I would, I would say properly negative, view of what's called the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. Right? The idea that if we have faith in God, then he will bless us with success and happiness and material blessing. This will just automatically happen. Right? Most of us in this room would rightly reject the health and wealth gospel when it's put that blatantly. But here's the thing. All of us have a health and wealth gospel. Whenever God, whenever Christ 
whenever the knowledge of Christ becomes a means and not just the end and not the end, we effectively have a health and wealth gospel. He becomes something we use to get what we really want rather than being what we really want. We all have that. I have that all the time. Right? For me and for, for people in my position and Dwayne's position, one of the things is we want to know Christ so that we'll be ministerially successful. He becomes the means to something rather than the end goal. And we all have that. And we all need to turn from that. Right? But those things, right, um, don't get me wrong, Christ does give us things. Right? The knowledge of him brings many benefits. But those things, those benefits and blessings can never be the end goal. Right? God doesn't let us come to know him in order that he might give us blessing and fix hardships. He gives us blessings. He sends hardships. He does all things so that we might know him and become more like him. Right? This is the meaning of that great promise in Romans 8.28, one of the really abused promises in all of the Bible. It says, Therefore we know that all things are working together for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But the problem with that promise is what we do with it, and that is that we invent a definition of good, stick it in there, and say, this is what God's going to do for me. But in the very next verse, Paul explains that good. He says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The good that all things are working together for, the purpose for which all things have been brought into your life individually and for our lives collectively is that we might be conformed to the image. That is the good that he is continually working toward. And that is the goal, therefore, that we press on toward. And when knowing Christ and becoming like him becomes our singular goal, our prize, right, when we're convinced that it's the worthiest goal and prize there is, then we begin to approach every situation differently. Uh, because every situation, whatever it is, the situation is not the ultimate thing. Growing in the knowledge of Christ and becoming like him is the point, and this changes everything. For instance, when I argue with someone, whether it's a friend, spouse, significant other, whatever it may be, rather than simply asking how I can win this fight, I ask, what do I need to know about Christ? And what do I need to become more like him in? When things go our way, Rather than patting ourselves on the back for a good job, we ask, what is it that we've learned about Christ? And how should that lead me to become more like him? And when things seem to go against us, rather than complaining or focusing solely on how to fix the situation, we ask what we need to learn about Christ and what it means to be more like him in this. And this has been a real personal challenge for me in the last year and a plus. I've uh, faced for myself personally some personal disappointments, uh, some of them deeper than others. 
some of which have been very discouraging. And on top of that, there have just been some things that have taken a lot longer than I thought they would. And being in that waiting season in between, feeling kind of anchorless, uh, unrooted. My constant instinct is to try to fix the situation. To ask God to fix the situation. Lord, would you hurry up with this? Um, And there's nothing wrong with these prayers. But one of the things that God has led me to by his mercy uh, is to pray differently. So out of both a desire and in order to develop that desire, uh, I've been praying more this past year that whatever else happens, I want to know Christ. In a season of waiting for a calling, I want to come to the end of the process, not just with a calling, but with a testimony. And I've asked God, Lord, as long as it takes, that I may not only trust you through the process, but that I may learn to treasure you all the more. Trusting Christ is one thing. Trust him for something. But to treasure him as the end goal That is what we need to strive after. I want to encourage you to be clear about your goal, about what we're pressing on toward in this year, and to be fully assured that it is the worthiest, the only worthy thing in life. But the next thing that we need if we're going to press on comes uh, in verse 12 again. After the preceding verses, having declared his desire to fully know Christ and to be like him, Paul confesses that he hasn't yet attained these things. And in verse 13, he declares that he doesn't consider himself to have yet made it his own. So the second thing that's involved in pressing on is regularly admitting that you haven't yet reached the goal. It's a pretty obvious thing, but it's an important thing. And we need to admit it, and I want to just mention a couple of things about this. We need to admit it Without excuse. One of the things that we tend to do a lot, let me rephrase that. One of the things that I tend to do a lot is to say, yes, you are right. I was wrong about this. Pause for a second. And then explanation of why I'm really not that wrong, right? Or why the thing that I'm wrong about is actually not as bad as you think it is, right? Or really how you caused this wrong actually anyway. So it's really your fault. But one of the things we need to do, Paul doesn't say, I haven't attained these things. Well, because here's the reasons why. Here's why my not yet attaining them isn't that big a deal, or it's not my fault. He simply says, I haven't yet attained them. He acknowledges it, and he admits it. And we need to be a place as a church where we can regularly admit to one another we haven't gotten there yet, uh, where we regularly, when necessary, challenge each other, you're not there yet. But we as a church are relatively good at that, of being a place where we can acknowledge I'm not there yet. Uh, I think it's one of the things that's kind of deeply ingrained here at Liberty, and I think it's probably one of the things that attracts many of you to Liberty, is that it's a place where many of us say we haven't gotten there yet. 
So what I want to do is talk about this thing from a different angle, and that's this. That as good as we are as a church at being a place that's safe to say, I'm not there yet. One of the problems that we have as a church sometimes, and we probably get this from the wider culture, is that we think that that's the end of it. We think we're done now that we've admitted we're not there yet. I'm not there yet. Now, aren't I great? Aren't I awesome for being honest? Well, no, not really. When I was doing youth ministry, I used to have this one student who just, he had no filter. He just had no filter. And on top of that, he was just kind of rude, right? And kind of obnoxious. So he would say really, like, rude things to people and really painful things to people. And his excuse every time would be, I'm just being real. I'm just keeping it real. And I would say to him, yes, you are being real. You're being a real jerk. Uh, Sometimes the language would get stronger, right? But so what if you're being real? The point of the confessing, the point of saying I haven't gotten there yet, is to begin from there to press on to the thing that you haven't yet attained. It's not so that you can just sit there saying, I haven't yet attained. Paul doesn't say, I haven't yet attained. He says, I haven't yet attained. But one thing I do, I press on. We as a church need to begin to understand that more, I think. We need to celebrate maybe a little less how real we are and become more serious about pressing on from where we are. The third thing that is involved in pressing on comes from verse 13. Paul writes, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I want to concentrate on that phrase, forgetting what lies behind. When Paul writes that he's forgetting what lies behind, what is he referring to? What is it that he's leaving behind? I think the answer is actually in verses 4 through 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right. These are things upon which Paul, prior to his conversion, built both his identity and his sense of righteousness before God. Before his conversion, Paul's answer to the question, who am I? Who am I? Would have been, I'm a Jew. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm an expert in the law, and I'm I'm meticulous in keeping it. I'm someone who's passionate about God to the point of persecuting anyone that I think is blaspheming him. And those would have been Paul's answer to the question, what makes me righteous before God? And it's precisely these answers, these wrong answers to those questions that Paul is leaving behind. What Paul is leaving behind, what he's forgetting, 
It's part of his pressing on. Is everything outside of Christ upon which he built his identity and his sense of righteousness before God. It's not necessarily that any of those things were bad. In fact, a lot of them were good things. The problem was that they had taken the place that's reserved for Christ alone. And once that happens, when good things become ultimate things, when gifts become the source of identity and of meaning and of righteousness, then outward sin follows. So forgetting what lies behind involves constantly turning from everything that would take the place of Christ for our sense of identity, for our sense of righteousness before God, and everything that impedes us from pressing on in the knowledge of him. And this involves, and this is important, this involves both our victories that swell us up with pride and the sins that haunt us. But forgetting what lies behind isn't always easy. Forgetting what lies behind isn't always easy because those victories, those false sources of identity, of righteousness, they do provide a measure of satisfaction, of security, of pleasure. And there are so many times when their offer and their presence seems so much nearer and so much more real and so much more tangible than what Christ is offering and his presence. But you have to remember that they are at best shadows. But Christ is the substance. They are a house of cards that will one day crumble. But Christ is the rock that will stand forever. But it's not just the victories that swell us that need to be left behind, but the sins that haunt us. Forgetting what lies behind can be very hard because some sins, some sins simply aren't forgotten so easily. Some sins, whether committed by us or against us, leave what feel like lasting stains. A guilt and a shame that, won't, that don't seem to go away. A bitterness or a sadness that keeps bubbling to the surface at unexpected times and in unexpected ways. One of my favorite authors, William Faulkner, once wrote in a play called Requiem for a Nun. The past is never dead. It's not even past. For some of us, it feels like our past has a grip on us in the present that feels impossible to shake. But here, again, I think we can look at Paul's own life experience. In verse 6, he writes that he was a persecutor of the church. And this wasn't just a duty to him. He was zealous in it. He, was, he imprisoned believers. He approved of at least one execution. In Acts 8.3, it describes him as ravaging the church and going from house to house, dragging men and women off to prison. So if anyone has a past that ought to be difficult to put behind them, it ought to be Paul. But here's how he describes his relationship 
the relationship between his past and what Christ has done in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying, I was the worst of them all, but in saving me, the foremost of sinners, Christ has definitively answered the question once for all, for the rest of history, for everyone else who will come after me, who's wondering, is the grace of Christ sufficient? The answer is a resounding yes. My father, who's a pastor, uh, he has this illustration. When you have your back to the sun, your shadow is out in front of you. But if you turn around and face the sun, your shadow is now behind you. When we have our back to God in full flight in rebellion, our shadow, our, the darkness, the consequences of our sin lie in front of us. But if we'll turn and face the sun, Jesus Christ, He in his mercy, his abounding mercy to sinners, puts that behind us. I want to encourage and challenge all of you today as we press on to forget what lies behind. That doesn't mean, of course, that that your life will automatically be rosy. It doesn't mean necessarily even all the consequences of your sin will go away, although the most important of them will your broken fellowship with the Father. But it does mean that there will have been a turning point in a new direction. One of my favorite days of each year, depending on the year, is either December 22nd or December 23rd. You know what day that is? It's the day after the winter solstice. right? So the winter solstice is the shortest day of the year. But the day after the winter solstice is someone who loves the summer and the sunlight. The day after the winter solstice, beginning that day, I can say to myself, the days are getting longer. Right? The days are getting longer. Now, seen in isolation, that day is still the second shortest day of the year and the second darkest day. But seen in context, it's a turning point. The beginning of light breaking in ever more strongly into the day. That's what repentance is. Yes, all the consequences might not go away yet. There may be still, in his mercy, things you have to deal with. And yet it marks the beginning of the light of Christ breaking in more and more each day. To press on means, involves forgetting all that is behind us. So he calls us here to press on, to know the goal to press on to the goal to know Christ in all his breadth and length and depth and height, to press on 
the beginning of which is acknowledging that we haven't yet attained that goal. And to press on as we forget that which lies behind us. But having seen what God calls us to, we need to see what God has done so that we might answer his call. And I just want to mention three quick things. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. One of the things that God has done is he's provided us godly leaders worth emulating. Right? The amazing thing, of course, is that Paul has just confessed his own imperfection. And yet he is nevertheless able to call people to imitate him. Now, obviously, the point isn't really to imitate Paul ultimately, but to imitate, as he puts it in Corinthians, to follow him as he follows Christ. Right? But just in case you weren't aware of this, let me break this news to you. The leaders in our church are not perfect. In all seriousness, it's really true. Okay. Um, we're far, and we know it, we will let you down sometimes. I mean, I can look out into this room, and I can think of specific ways that I've let specific people down. The leaders of our church are human. But contrary to what our cynical age tells us, that doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't learn from them. We don't imitate leaders because they're perfect, but because they're willing to admit that they're not. And because that admission is not the end point, but the beginning of their own pressing on. And so just really practically, I want to encourage you to get to know your leaders, whether elders or deacons or home meeting leaders, and to learn what you can from them. Always being gracious because they too are human beings, sinners in need of a savior. Pilgrims still on the way. Right. Normally it would be your leaders uh, getting to know you, initiating that. But as one of the leaders, I can just say sometimes, in all seriousness, we're overwhelmed. And sometimes you're going to have to get our attention. And I, and I apologize for that. But it is reality. But I want to say that not just me, but we're all here available and we are also trying our best to do a better job of that initiating. But I also want to encourage some of you to step forward as leaders. Paul admits he's not perfect, and yet he's willing to say, come imitate me. And some of you use your own imperfection as an excuse to step out from responsibility. And that's something that I want to encourage you uh, to overcome and to address. And there's a story, I've shared this with some of you. So the old Cosby show, right? There's a scene where the middle sister is talking to the youngest sister. And the youngest sister is saying, she's going to drop out of school. And the middle sister says to her, uh, you're in fourth grade. If you drop out of school, what are you going to do? And the younger sister pauses for a second, and she goes, I'll teach third grade. Right? right? Uh, yeah, okay, fine. You're a spiritual fourth grader. Guess what? We have spiritual third graders. Right? And, uh, and you can say, hey, whatever it is that I have, it may not be much, but I, here it is. And let's walk this together. So God has provided leaders to imitate. But the second thing he's done is that he, in Christ, has taken possession of us. Look at verse 12. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus 
has made me his own. And it's important to see that this is something that took place once and for all. This doesn't change with how well we're doing and pressing on. We need to learn this truth and we need to know it day after day. Because there are going to be times in this upcoming year and throughout the rest of your life as a follower of Jesus when you are going to be beyond discouraged at your own faithlessness. At your foolishness. At your outright disobedience. You're going to be frustrated at how slowly you seem to be growing, if at all. And in those times, you're going to need to come back to this truth that Christ has already made you his own. That's who you are. That's the new answer to the question, who am I? Paul's new answer to the question, who am I? I'm one who belongs to Christ. One who has been made one of his. This is beautifully expressed in a poem by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know him, he was a German uh, theologian and pastor who initially fled out of Germany uh, when the Nazis came to power, but then he snuck back in because he felt that um, if he was going to minister to his people after the fall of the Nazis, then he needed to be there with them in the suffering. He was eventually arrested um, and hanged. But while in prison, he wrote a bunch of letters and all sorts of other things. And one of the things he wrote there was a poem called, Who Am I? And he begins the poem this way, Who Am I? They often tell me I would step from myself's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. And then he goes on, Who Am I? They also tell me I would beat the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to winning. And then he goes on to ask, So am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat. Thirsting for words of kindness. Trembling with anger at petty humiliation. Powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance. Weary and emptying at praying, at thinking, at making. Faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. That's the conclusion. In victory and defeat, in holiness and sin, in struggle and whatever, who am I? You, O oh Lord, know I am thine. I'm yours. He's taken hold of us. And finally, he has given us his commitment assurance that he will complete the task. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The call of Christ Jesus that made you his own included getting you to the goal. 
verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so I close with this thought from a man named Simon Tugwell to encourage us as we press on this year. So long as we imagine that it is we who have to look for God, we must often lose heart. But it is the other way about. He is looking for us. And so we can afford to recognize that very often we are not looking for him. Far from it. We are in full flight from him. In high rebellion against him. And he knows that. And has taken it into account. He has followed us into our darkness. And there where we thought to escape him. We run straight into him. So we do not have to erect a false piety for ourselves to give us the hope of salvation. Our hope is in his determination to save us. And he will not give in. Let us press on this year to know Christ and to become like him. Because he will not give in. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the great privilege to have tasted the goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would enlarge and awaken and enlarge an ever greater hunger and thirst to know him more. And that that supreme goal would fuel our lives. And if there are any here today who don't yet know, who have not yet tasted his goodness, would you reveal yourself in a mighty way that they too might learn that everything else, everything else in life is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness. Well, we thank you, we praise you, and keep us in your hands as we press on this year. We pray these things in the name of our glorious Savior. Amen.